Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of China Inc. by Bamboo Works, where we discuss the latest business and financial news from China and what it all means. I'm Doug Young, Bamboo Works editor in chief, and I'm joined today by Rene Vangustein, one of our founding partners, who's also a longtime China watcher and former investment banker. On today's program, watch out, world! The Chinese are coming back to the global tourism circuit. And we'll also look at a recent fundraising frenzy by U.S. and Hong Kong-listed Chinese companies. We'll start with tourism, which has been a hot topic ever since China officially scrapped its zero-COVID policy in December. Since then, China's been gradually increasing flights into and out of the country and allowing people to travel globally again. The return of international tourism got a big boost last month when Beijing officially scrapped quarantine requirements for all inbound travelers. And it's getting another big boost this week with the official resumption of group tours for global Chinese travelers on February 6th. These are all big steps for China to restart what was once a booming industry of outbound Chinese tourists. The resumption of group tours seems to be one of the final pieces of the puzzle to return to pre-COVID travel level. This kind of group tour seems particularly popular among Chinese compared with other international travelers, say Americans or Europeans. So,、uh, Renee, want to chime in a, a little bit on on why you think that is? Well, I think that、um, I think that in part it's it's driven by economic concerns.、Um, in part, I believe、um, it is part of the effort of the Chinese government to re-engage with the world. If you look at the places that typically. Have been the major beneficiaries of、uh, outbound Chinese tourism.、Uh, you look in at yeah Japan and Korea to some extent and a bit of、uh, Southeast Asia, but you look in a lot also at Europe and the U.S. North America. And you know、uh, relationships between China and and the West have not been particularly good over the past few years and. And I think this is one of many measures that the Chinese government is undertaking to、um, rebuild relationships in in a positive way, in part because of economic considerations. And you see that it's it's with、uh, group travel, it's with the students now,、mm. uh, where uh, as recently I think as yesterday or two days ago. The Ministry of Education in of China has told the Chinese students who study overseas that they have to get out of China and go back to their place of study, and that、uh, if they continue to do that online, they will not get accreditation of their diplomas in China.、Um, you've also seen on the diplomatic. Uh, front a strong effort to、uh, reach out to countries like Australia, for instance, where you know things had not been very good for a long time.、Um, Scholz from Germany、uh, was in China not so long ago. Macron is going, or he's going to be there soon. So I, I think it's it's part of that overall effort. Mm-hmm. Specifically on groups, I mean, you, you and I both、uh, have lived in China and Asia for a long time. I mean, the Chinese just—it's sort of, I guess, the way Japan was back in the '80s. You know, you, they, this is just a sort of stereotypical cliche of you know the the Chinese tourist group and you know them traveling with their little flags and their beanies and all this stuff. 
do you think that's a deliberate thing by the government to sort of control the 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 numbers and of people going out and where they go or does it have to do with the fact that chinese are are sort of new to international travel why does sort of this group tour seem to have such a big appeal for for chinese travelers well i mean my initial reaction is um quite it's quite normal phenomena uh in the early days of a country opening up to the world and discovering the world, at least at the level of, you know, a growing number of its citizens traveling internationally. You alluded to Japan, and and that's a very good example. If you go back to the 80s and 90s, uh, most Japanese tourists going to certainly uh, North America and Europe were going in group. And, you know, I grew up in Europe, and if you go back to the 70s, and, well, yeah, second half of the 60s, 70s, Americans were going (laughs) to Europe in groups. Oh, okay. Um, So, yeah, so I I don't think this is um, very exceptional uh, in terms of uh, Chinese uh, tourists approaching it that way. Uh, In part also because it's not just the distance, it's obviously the language, it's the culture. So there there are a fair amount of uh, obstacles that uh, I think pushes people to prefer, at least in their initial foray overseas, to uh, go the group approach. Okay. And I guess what's interesting to me, I guess in, in China, that's different from the rest of the world is that China almost uses group travel as a way to sort of punish places or reward places, you know, when when they first started allowing group travel to Hong Kong, that was like a yeah, you know, big deal because they know it's big numbers and and right. very. I don't think many other countries can really do that. You know, just cut off all group tours or start group tours to this place or that. Well, I I think yeah, I mean, I think it's not a matter of of numbers. It's also a matter of politics. Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, I mean, American American uh, citizens, when they were traveling to Europe in groups, I mean, there, there were quite a lot of them uh, doing that back in, you know, end of the 60s, 70s, and so on. But there was obviously, in the, in the U.S., there was no political pressure to try and, and you know, limit or guide whatever its citizens were seeing or visiting overseas or whatever. Hmm. Um, There could be a bit of that uh, with respect to China, especially for Chinese citizens who, I would say, have not been exposed to the world. There might be a desire on some parts to channel their exposure to the world and (laughs) control it a little bit more. Right, right, right. I definitely, definitely see that. Okay, let's move on to our next topic, which is going to be a look at the recent boom in fundraising by Chinese companies in in both New York and Hong Kong. Um, We did a little analysis on Bamboo Works, and we found that eight Chinese companies had raised a collective $2 billion in the month of January alone, taking advantage of the recently positive market sentiment towards the group after a two-year winter. The amount probably would have been even higher, too, we should add, uh, if not for the week-long Lunar New Year holiday. Now, the biggest group of fundraisers came from the healthcare sector, while internet entertainment and services were also 
well represented. In a slightly different twist from previous times, most of the funds raised this time are coming from new share issues rather than bonds. I'm guessing this maybe has something to do with the Fed's recent interest rate hikes, but can you talk a bit more specifically about why they're... Because in the past, I feel like they typically tend to issue bonds and notes. Why the preference for shares this time? Well, I think it it really varies from company to company. Um, the uh, first of all, you know, if you look at some of IPOs by Chinese companies that have been announced for uh, the U.S. market, and I'm thinking about Hasai, for instance, um, as well as the uh, pet. Oh, right, <laughs> right. We should say Hasai. They do autonomous driving, right? Yeah, they they produce LiDAR equipment, which obviously is is a critical component of autonomous driving uh, systems. Those are what I would call your typical IPO. Hmm. Um, Some of these companies were thinking about doing IPO in the US a year and a half, two years ago. And then, you know, things deteriorated between the US and China. And then China came out and said that companies would have to be pre-approved to do IPOs in the U.S. and it would depend on the sector and so on and so on. And and then some of those projects were put on the back burner because of that. So the fact that they're happening now is just what I would call delayed or deferred execution. As always, whenever markets kind of reopen, if I can use that term. And I think that with respect to Chinese companies in the U.S., it is kind of a reopening, at least in terms of the potential interest by U.S. investors in Chinese stocks again. Hmm. Then then you're going to see a flurry of uh, companies that are going to hit the market. You know, the window is open and, and you want to go and you go before you may not be able to go anymore. When markets reopen after having gone through a difficult situation, there's there's never a certainty that it's going to reopen for good. For some companies and, and bankers, bankers think a bit different because they're just focused on fees. But for for some market experts and so on, it, it's like, okay, uh, let's start and then let's see if it really continues, if, if the interest and the appetite on the funding side is is really very strong and is going to be sustained and all of that. So some companies are obviously focused on that. And if you're prepared uh, and if you can, you go as quickly as it reopens in between inverted comma because you're not too sure how long it's going to last. So my expectation is that we're going to see a flurry of those over the coming weeks and maybe two, three months. And then then we see how the market absorbs that and how the market settles. Um, bonds versus equity. Yeah. Uh, well, obviously, uh, obviously, interest rates have gone up substantially and and fairly quickly. That obviously has raised the cost on the debt side. On the other hand, if you look at valuations in the equity market, um, they are not as high as they used to be. I think that for Chinese companies listed in the U.S., we still see that the valuations are not where they used to be. So there's still, to some extent, a discount, if if you want, that I think is the result of what happened over the last 
three years, the, um, the auditing issue, uh, the regulatory crackdowns, and so on and so on. So, you know, every company is going to look at each, each avenue and figure out the cost and also the advantage of capital, equity capital versus debt, which inevitably has to be retired at some point in time. It's really very much an individual decision, right? one company at a time. Okay. Right. I guess just for now, at least, like I said, seven of the eight companies we tracked uh, were doing equity issues. Yeah. How about uh, in terms of sectors? Like I said, uh, healthcare and internet were two of the big fundraisers in this, this recent round. Mm. Uh, but other sectors that used to be big, uh, like education and even consumer and, and new energy, which all used to be pretty hot, have been notably absent from the recent uh, fundraising. Uh, do you think these sectors might join in as well? Or do you see this whole phenomenon just fizzling out pretty soon? Well, I don't want to be too harsh about education, but you know the way I the way I look at it, education is dead as far as I'm concerned, oh. or at least the kind of the kind of company education companies that you know came to market and were super successful for a number of years, that is gone, uh, and I don't think that's going to come back. Interestingly enough, if you look at the um, companies that IPO'd in the U.S. over the last maybe uh, 12 months, definitely, maybe more like the last eight months, there were uh, two or three, if I'm not mistaken, smaller education companies that did relatively small capital raises. But in my understanding, there were more traditional kind of education companies or focused on vocational right. education, which is obviously a big focus of uh, of the government. So maybe that part of the education sector still uh, has a future in in the market. Healthcare, that is not surprising because I think that uh, a lot of people are very much focused on what has happened with COVID. Mm. And I think that, uh, you know, many investors in the West and, and every investor who follows China is aware uh, these days and has been aware for a little bit of time now of the fact that uh, the healthcare sector in China has an urgent need of uh, capital an urgent need of development, an urgent need of more hospitals, more sophisticated medical equipment, and on and on and on. Some investors figured that out two, three, four years ago. But I think that what COVID has done is that it has crystallized those needs much more strongly in the mind of investors who at least follow that sector and follow China closely. Mm -hmm. So that, to me, is, is not really surprising. Chinese uh, society is getting older. The needs for a stronger uh, healthcare uh, net, if you want, is only going to continue to grow. So that makes sense. Consumer is a bit of a surprise, but it, you know it may just be a little bit on the lag. It's still very early in in this kind of reopening, and um, we'll see what happens over the coming months. Other than that, from an investor standpoint. I'll go back once again to, you know, what is strategically important to um, to the Chinese government. And there are a few industries that are very clearly in need of funds. 
have government support, policy support, and, and encouragement and all of that, and in some cases funding. And obviously we're talking about technology, especially the chip sector, particularly as it's becoming more and more difficult for Chinese companies to have access to the most advanced chip technology from the West, rare earth metals, new energy, uh, whether it's the vehicles or solar and wind and so on. Those are sectors that um, that I think are very important for the future of uh, of China. Yeah, actually, it's interesting because um, one of the sectors I said that wasn't represented in this recent fundraising round was new energy, which surprised me a little bit. But then when I thought about it, actually, a lot of these new energy companies have China-listed units, yes. I should say. And they're using their China-listed units to raise money rather than their U.S. ones because the valuation gap is so big. Uh, I think the P's for the Chinese companies, the Chinese-listed companies, are often much higher than than for the U.S.-listed ones. So I guess it makes more sense to do the fundraising in China rather than outside of China. Yeah, and if you if you look at at new energy and solar, but also wind. And you look at the last five, six years, pretty much every major, every company, I would say, solar manufacturing company in China that were listed in the U.S. have either gone private and gone back to relist in the domestic market in China, in the Asia market, hmm. or in the case of Jinko Solar, Dacho New Energy have uh, listed pretty much principal operating uh, subsidiaries in the Asian market, creating a second channel for funding. And wind companies pretty much did the same thing. So if you look at wind and solar today in China, every company basically has a foot into the Asian market and access to equity capital, and obviously debt uh, as well, but equity capital in China typically at a higher valuation than uh, than the current valuations in the U.S. Hmm. Uh, is uh, seen by you know the few companies that are still listed in the U.S. Right, like Jinko and Dacho. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I mean I follow these guys pretty closely, and I know you do too. And the gap in valuations uh, surprises me a bit. Well, anyhow, let's uh, wrap up with that. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening this week. Uh, join us again next week for another edition of China Inc., when we'll look once more at the latest trending China business topics. Hope to see you then. Goodbye for now. Goodbye. Thank you all.